So Hebrews 10, we're going to finish the rest of the chapter today, which is 20 verses, but I'm not going to say a lot about some of those verses. Hebrews 10. I hope you were encouraged last Sunday by the strong teaching of Hebrews 10 about the offering of the Lord Jesus once for all his people, for all their sin, for all time. Perhaps two, at least one or two of you may have been encouraged to reply to the accusation and condemnation of the enemy by preaching the gospel, if not to your, at least to yourself, if not also to him. I know a few people went and grabbed some notes to get that, that kind of preach there at the end. Now, like all of Paul's letters in the New Testament, having set out doctrine, teaching, truth, he then sets out application. Here's what to do with it. So here we've got some instructions that start with therefore and then have some let us statements. Therefore, brothers, sisters, since we have confidence to enter the holy place through the blood of Jesus by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near. Draw near where? To him. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus' body here is connected to, pictured by, the veil of the tabernacle or temple, which separated God's presence from men. But Jesus' body broken has given us entrance to the presence of God. We may come and draw near to the Most Holy One. When Jesus' body was torn and broken on the cross, the entrance to God's presence, His heaven, His heart, was made for us. So it was fitting then that the moment that Jesus died on the cross, the thick veil in the temple that separated the Holy of Holies, as it was called, in fact it was an empty dark room, there was nothing in there. But it was, it was shielded from the people outside, the priests and so on. The tail, the veil was torn open from top to bottom. It was about as thick as one of my fingers. It was a massive piece of tapestry. Jesus actually opened the Holy of Holies on the highest of heaven to us by his own broken body and shed blood, which we'll pick up again soon, physically, visibly, in the emblems of bread and wine. The earthly symbol was opened at the same time. The function of the temple, the premises and the practices and the priests was ended. That was the old way. It's now dead and gone. Jesus himself is the new and living way. We don't serve under those old practices. We serve in newness of life, a new and living way through Jesus. We're not offered an empty sanctuary with enclosed or even open curtains. We're not involved in temple practices and temple worship. We're offered entrance into the presence of the living God again and again and again, simply through faith in the Lord Jesus who has made the perfect sacrifice to open heaven for us. Some of us would talk about, you know, I look forward to going to heaven when I die. You can go to heaven every day. You with me? You can enter into the presence of God. You can enjoy Him. You can speak to Him and hear from Him every single day. 
You can make those brief visits home every day because Jesus has made a new and living way. This new covenant is not about places and practices and routines and religion. It's about a person. It's all, I should have put another one of those screens up. It's all about Jesus. Almost everything that we think about, salvation, blessing, is really Jesus with another name on it. It's all in him. It's all about him. Anyway, there are three actions of faith here. These three kind of instructions to us set out in verses. The first one is, let us draw near. It's right there in that middle of that long and full sentence. All that's wrapped around it supports this, this statement. Let us draw near. Why? Because we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way. We have confidence to come. We're invited to come. We're welcome to come. Then we have a great high priest, Jesus himself, over the house of God. We have someone who holds the way open for us. He's not leaving heaven. He stands there as our anchor, our surety, our welcome. This morning, um, Chris, myself, others were welcoming people as they came into this building. Jesus welcomes you into the presence of God every time you will draw near. We have a great high priest. So let us draw near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience, from the, the record, the guilt of all that we've done wrong. It's still, it's still true. We did those things, but we are no longer handling a bad conscience about them because we know we are forgiven. Our hearts are sprinkled clean and our bodies washed with pure water. Because of all this and more, we have confidence to draw near. Because the Lord has accepted us. He's cleansed our hearts, our conscience. We've acted in faith upon that promise of a clean conscience. We've laid hold of that promise of a clean conscience by submitting, as Herschel was just telling us, to, sub to baptism in water. That's what it means by bodies washed in pure water. It doesn't mean you have to have a shower before you can pray. Just have a shower because it's good for you, but... Our bodies have been washed with pure water. We did it. We, 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 lay, we, we laid hold of the truth. Jesus has died for me to forgive me. I lay hold of the promise of a clean conscience by submitting to baptism. That, by the way, is one of Robert Rob's favorite verses about baptism from Peter. We are to draw near to God with a sincere heart. Sincerity, honesty, no pretense. God knows us better than we know ourselves. So he's not impressed by our words. He sees our hearts. If we have a bad conscience about something, that's exactly why we need to come to him and what we need firstly to talk to him about. That's where we need to start from. We always draw near and start from where we are. Yeah? Honest, open, asking for help. Then we draw near with confidence, with full assurance of faith. Why? Because we're not accepted because of who we are, but because of who Jesus is. We are loved in Jesus by the Father. We come confident to him. We can ask confidently of him. We can rest confidently in him, trusting him that he will answer us and help us. And we don't draw near just once. Jesus has died once for all, but we don't draw near once for all. We draw near again and again, at least daily. Because Jesus taught us a daily prayer, a pattern prayer. The apostle here is repeating what he said earlier. Hebrews repeats itself. 
Hebrews 4, verse 14. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, through the skies, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. Hold on to that, please. There is nothing in you that Jesus does not sympathize with. You think it's too dark, it's too shameful. Jesus sympathizes with our weaknesses. He knows us. The one who's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near. Draw near happens about seven times in the book of Hebrews. That's an interesting number in Bible language. Let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy. We don't go to God just so we can complain and get something up our chest. We go so we'll receive back something that helps us, that equips us. We may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. You know, if you, if you go to a friend and you tell them about something, you get some sympathy, a little bit of, you know, there, there, there kind of thing. That's kind of nice. But if they can really help you, that's even better, isn't it? If they can really help, they can put their hand to the problem with you. They can give some practical advice. They can show you something. They can give you a simple thing that will help to unlock it. Jesus is here to help us. Not just a, sympathy is lovely, but helps even better. Mercy and grace to help in time of need. I'm going back pre- preaching Hebrews 40. Let's get to Hebrews 10 again. Let us draw near. That's the first one. Let us draw near. We come in to God's presence. We pour out our hearts before him. We receive back strength and help. Don't leave the presence of God without receiving something. At least the confidence that he's heard you and the answer's coming. The second one is let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. Let's go there. I've missed that somewhere. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. That's an interesting word. The King James has provoke. Uh, haven't, haven't you know what it feels like to be provoked? It's kind of, oh! You might not like being provoked, but it's good for you to be provoked. Let us consider how to urge one another on to love and to good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. Just as in Hebrews 4, these two things are put together. Let us draw near, let us hold fast our confession. We just read, we just read them twice, Hebrews 4, Hebrews 10. Draw near to God, hold fast our confession. We stand before the Lord in our times of drawing near, worship, praise, and so on. Then we stand before the world confessing our Lord. You see, you don't just hold on to faith, you confess your faith. It needs to be said. It needs to be stated. Now you know, those of you who know me well enough, I'm not talking about projecting your faith like magic to make something happen. I decree and declare... Don't do that stuff. That's false teaching. What I'm saying is this, coming back to what we said last week, preach the gospel to yourself every day and then declare it to others. Give an account for the hope that you have. Prophesy 
it against the devil's accusations. You don't need to make things up. You just need to stick to gospel truth. Who is Jesus and what is he to you? Know and use the scriptures. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope. There are moments when you feel down, when you feel distressed. And you can talk about being down and being distressed, but it's even better to say, but I trust in the Lord. If you read the Psalms, you find David had some really dark days. And he tells it like it is, and he pours out his heart. And then sometimes they're quite difficult Psalms. They're not the Psalms we particularly pick on a Sunday morning, perhaps. You know, it's like, oh, my goodness. But every one of those Psalms, somewhere along the line, comes back to this, yet will I trust in the Lord. Wake up, my soul. Yeah, Come on, soul. Trust in the Lord. See, we need to talk ourselves into hope again. Now, I'm not saying we, it's just use of words. By confessing the truth, we actually find our hearts and our minds engage again with the truth. And we actually are trusting the Lord. Pour out your heart, but make sure that you are trusting in the Lord. You're confirming your hope in him. There's a dark shadow here in these verses, though, behind this encouragement to these Hebrew Christians. They've already had to confess Jesus, Messiah, before men, sometimes under great pressure and opposition. And it seems they're about to face even a greater test. I'll come back to that in a few moments. The apostle urges them, in the face of great difficulty, great opposition, persecution even, to confess our hope. Hold fast the confession of your hope in him, in other words. Don't waver, for he who promised is faithful. The word hope reminds us that our, this gospel of Jesus covers, as we say, said last week, our past, our present, and our future. We trust in the Lord and hope in him. And for more than today, do you understand? We might not see all the answer today. But we still hope in him. Much of our life as a Christian is lived in future hope. Now we live in an instant society. You know? We can't even think for a moment before we reply to a text or an email. It's like instant, instant, instant. The life of faith is not instant. It's not a sprint. It's a long walk. And we need to endure in faith. And a lot of Christian life is lived in future hope. Today is not the end of the matter. This is not it. This is not all. Thank God for that. We believe in future grace, future reward, future glory. So we need to confess our hope. Even if we use the words of that, you know, Frank Sinatra song, the best is yet to come. <laughs> we believe in hope. Not just optimism. No, in God who is our hope. In God who will bring us through to a better time. We live by future grace. And the third one is let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. I want you to notice this in these verses. One of the ways that we hang on to hope, one of the ways that we grow strong to endure is we encourage one another. 
It's one another's community. The gospel works in community. It's not just an individual thing. It's not about you and your personal salvation. It's bigger than that, broader than that. The gospel is at work in a community, in a family, in a group of people who care for one another and love one another and keep encouraging one another to go on. Go on, go on. Engage with one another in the church of Christ. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our assembling together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. I read an article by a guy who said Hebrews is like a pastor preaching a sermon to his flock. His name's Jared Compton. I'm going to read a bit of it to you. This is, he's imagining the pastor standing there and delivering Hebrews all in one go. There's one sermon. And his summary is this. The pastor insists that the community of faith, the church, is an indispensable part of the solution, an urgently important means of grace. The church is. Fellowship is a means of grace. If the gospel work of our sermons is to have its full effect, the church must be actively involved. The pastor encourages his friends to follow his example and do the hard work of insightfully preaching the gospel to one another. The pastor makes it clear, in other words, that his and the other elders' leadership was insufficient. His friends needed the member-to-member ministry of the word. They needed the pastoral oversight of the community itself. Pastors, leaders, preachers encourage you that you do the work of the ministry. To firstly to one another and then to the world. You preach the gospel to one another. You care for one another. You pastor one another. That's God's vision of church. I don't know what yours is. And if you're going to keep, if you keep pressuring me to jo- join me with your vision of church, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go there. That's God's vision of church. Read it in Hebrews. Everyone caring for one another. Everyone encouraging one another. Everybody rebuking and encouraging and and restoring people who have fallen and building one another up. It's one another, folks. That's the message of the Bible. We need one another. We need to preach to and pass one another. To exhort, to encourage, we declare the gospel to one another. Then we declare it to the world. There's nothing the world gets that we don't rehearse first with one another. Praying for healing, preaching the gospel, encouraging the weak, releasing the captives. We do it amongst ourselves, then we export it to the world. It happens amongst us first, before we take it anywhere else. Because we've then learned it. We've learned the the power of God and the wisdom of God and the heart of God and how to represent him to one another. We can then do it to people who aren't even believers. I'm saying a lot about that and I need to move on. Okay, here's a headline for you. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. There's a a big thing in America going around of of that, just that. It's It's a big issue right now. People are constantly saying this. Preach the gospel to yourself every day. Preach the gospel to one another whenever you can. Whenever you get an opportunity to encourage one another. And preach the gospel to unbelievers when they give you opportunity. Don't, please, don't be rude. Don't be aggressive. We're to give an answer to people who ask us for the hope that is in us. When they give us opportunity, we speak to them. If they're not interested, they're not interested. 
We are under no command from God to go and force people to listen to the gospel. We're under no issue to be rude and assertive. There's another lettuce, though, within these verses. It's expressed in a negative. It's not forsaking our own assembling together and so on. Let me make that a positive statement. Let it statement. Let us gather together. Let us gather together. Why? We need one another. We need to build one another up. We are the church. We are a community of Christians. And that's true whether we are at the Sunday morning meeting or something like work or something else that keeps us away. But Sundays and many other times and many other occasions, we need to be meeting with our fellow Christians so that we can consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We won't know how to help and encourage one another unless there's some meeting, some gathering, where there's some conversation and some prayer. Does that make sense to you? It can happen in Starbucks, Esquires, whatever coffee shop. It can happen sitting in the corner of a pub. There's conversation. So we understand each other. Then there's encouragement. And you know what? Some of us have got into the habit now of sitting and praying with our eyes open in the middle of a restaurant or a cafe or wherever else. You know? It's good to do that. You don't have to kind of, oh, well, I better cloak. I hope no one sees me praying. You just talk out loud. They won't know what you're doing. Like I said before, you put an earpiece in your ear and you're walking along the street, you can talk, talk and pray as much as you like. People will think you're on the phone. Get up, go, 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 go ahead, go and do it. Wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Gathering together, not just so there's numbers, not just so there's a meeting. And it's more than meetings, and it's more than Sundays, certainly. It's so that we are building one another up. And there's a double thing in that. I get built up and I build up others. It's two-way. It's two-way. See, some people say this. I can't be with the believers right now. I'm not doing well. I need to be on my own until I'm sorted. That is a lie. The enemy cooked that one up. The truth is quite the opposite. Quite the opposite. You need to go where the Christians are so they will help you. We need the help of one another, even more when we're not doing well. What on earth do we think church and fellowship is? The time we put on our happy, clappy face. And we boast in our great faith and blessedness. Hallelujah. No, I, we can, I can do that when I mean it. Or is it a time also when we're sincere and we're caring and we're prayerful together and for one another? You know, you can be in a small group meeting and it can turn from praising the Lord to, pray, to praying and crying for one another in the course of an evening. It's time to demolish false and foolish thinking. What says the scripture? It says this, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more. Let us not forsake the assembling of ourselves together. You have no good reason for opting out. And, you know, some people, I mean, I've had people say to me, you know, Oh, I, I don't do church anymore, and I, 
Now, I don't read my Bible, I don't pray, but I still love the Lord. And I'm going, je ne comprends. I don't know what language you're speaking. It's in these practical areas of, gr- of grace, and disciplines of grace and routines of grace that actually we do love the Lord. We show we love the Lord by the way we are. And we show, to come back to 1 John, very importantly, the way we love the Lord by the way we love one another. So when we, if we're willing to forsake the company of Christians, we can't claim to love the Lord. It's as simple as that. You notice that all the more as you see the day drawing near, because the day is coming. Because the day is coming. Now, I've always heard that from preachers as being, because Jesus is coming. Well, that's true. Amen. And they say, the nearer we get to the coming of the Lord, the nearer we will draw together. Well, I I pray it will be so. But I don't think that's the day that's being spoken of here. See, the context is this. The day is drawing near to these Hebrew disciples of Jesus Messiah. It's a day in which they will face perhaps a life and death decision to either choose to confess Jesus and suffer for it or to deny him before terrible authorities who have the power of suffering and death. And they will release them if they deny Jesus and confess that Caesar is God. Under the Roman Emperor Nero, the Roman Empire is turning against the Christians. And again and again in little meetings in towns and cities across the Roman Empire, Christians would be faced with this. Do you deny Jesus as your Lord, your God, and will you confess that the emperor is God? The day is coming. Confessing Jesus is Lord. It's nice and easy. Jesus is Lord, creation is Lord. It's easy for us, isn't it? What about if your life hangs on it? It's a life and death issue in that moment. What will you say? As this letter is being written, that day is drawing near. Now, I'm not making any prophetic prediction today. I simply state that such times have come upon the church, even in this land, in the years since Jesus returned to the Father's side, and across the world today, Christians are persecuted to the point of death and martyrdom day after day. In fact, the persecution of the church of Jesus Christ has never gone away. It just flows around the world, different places, different times. For it never ceases. I don't think it will cease until Jesus comes. Our problem is that we treat things that are said in these scriptures, coming back to Hebrews 10, as being optional. Well, it's, it's, you know, I'll, I'll think about doing this and I'll think about whether to be involved in that. We treat them as optional, as extra to our daily lives. My friends, they are essential for us so that we do live sensibly, uprightly, godly, confidently before God. We seem to think that there's faith and there's church over here and then there's real life over here. I don't know what that real life is, but they're two separate things. I'm going to say to you this morning, real faith is real life. If faith is something different from the life you live every day, that's not real faith. Real faith is real life. It's every day finding the help of God. Every day depending on Jesus. Every day knowing the help of the Holy Spirit. In everything. Real faith is real life. You can turn it around and say real life is real faith. 
Real faith is not, let's pretend. Let's put on a happy face. It's not being religious. It is handling every bit of life through faith in Jesus, depending on Him. I had a little thought this week, you know. I remember growing up saying to me when I was a kid, you wait, you'll learn what's good for you. I, I wonder, what do they mean? Am I about to get a walloping? I don't know. You'll, you'll learn what's good for you. Well, I'll tell you something. In my 62 years, I still haven't altogether learned what's good for me. And I'm going to tell you why. See, do we know what's good for our body? Do we know what's good for our soul, our inner man? Our, the man of heart and mind and will. Yeah? Well, generally, we do know what's good for body and for soul. So why don't we live by those things and reject other things which aren't good for us? Okay, Why, when we know that good food and exercise and sleep are good for us, do we choose to do other things? It's because there's something beyond reason and sense and true self-interest at work in us. It's pride. It's conceit. It's arrogance. It is rebellion. It is foolishness. It is self-destructive. It is wickedness. It is sin. When offered a good thing, we choose a worse thing. How can that be? Because our hearts are tuned in our fallen human nature to reject the good and choose something else to the detriment, to the harm of our own bodies and souls. There's a warp in us. Go, no. Oh, this is really good for you. No. And people say, don't tell me that the gospel is all about sin. Do we need fixing? Yes. Thoroughly. Yes, the gospel is about Jesus dealing with our sin. At the cross and in us. By a process the Bible calls sanctification. He is working his life into us so that we learn to make better decisions and choices and actions. If we see what, that what we're doing is actually sinful, not just making excuses for it, since it dishonors God and actually harms us too, we might get further from the problem. But so long as oh, I've got this little... Remember people talking about, I've got this problem, Pastor. They call it a sin and we might get somewhere. They think I'm being funny with them. No, no, no. If it's sin, I know who we can get some help from. If we neglect the... Let's come back to the subject. This little side there. If we neglect the one another injunction and adjustment, which are long, there's 30 odd of them, and practically everything that people think a pastor should do, the Bible says one another should do. It doesn't mean he doesn't do it. It means we all do it when he shows us how to do it. If we neglect the one another injunctions, when, if we're not provoking one another to love and good deeds, if we neglect assembling together with our brothers and sisters and encouraging one another, one another, do you know what we're doing? We're baiting our own trap. We're setting our own tripwire. We're making it hard for ourselves. You think I'm overstating it? You think I'm laying it on too thick? Well, look what, what the apostle says now. For if we go on sinfully 
sinning willfully, still sinfully, if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Because Jesus has made the final one, yeah? But a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severe a punishment do you think he will deserve who's trampled underfoot the Son of God and has regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Let me summarize that for you. It is a wonderful thing to be in the hands of a loving Savior in whom is all your hope and all your trust. But it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of a God you have rejected and denied. This is a strong warning not to deny Jesus. Not in their case, to go back to the now-dead old covenant. And it follows straight on from, let us can hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. Let us assemble ourselves together, not forsaking it, as is the habit of some. Keep on encouraging one another, all the more, as you see that they're approaching. When we neglect those things, we set our trip away. We make it hard for ourselves. Let me say again that the worst thing we can do in this life is actually to deny Jesus before men. Now, many of us today, at this moment, it's hardly a life and death issue, is it, folks? We're not in that crisis. But we need to be ready for that day, and you, you build for that day by encouraging one another and building one another up and being ready to preach the gospel wherever the opportunity is, even if it's under pressure. Jesus says, when you stand before a court and they ask you, you know, don't worry about what you'll be given, what you need to say at that moment. In that moment, the Spirit of your Father in you will give you the words to say. I love that. The Spirit of your Father in you will give you what to say. Okay, there's a little small few to see. Let me just read it to you. I've put these together. The alternative to being warmed up in faith is what? Growing colder. The alternative to being built up in your most holy faith, that's Jude, by the way, is what? Being pulled down. The alternative to being encouraged is what? Being discouraged. The outcome of forsaking ourselves together, forsaking assembling together is what? Falling apart. I know those things to be true because I see it. I watch it. I warn about it. I want you to hear these things deeply, seriously today. And where, brothers and sisters, friends of yours, friends of mine, are beginning to grow grow cooler, be discouraged, what have we got to do? We've got to step in and encourage and provoke Say, don't, 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 don't go there. 
Don't set, your, don't set your own tripwire here, folks. Come back in. Come into the presence of God. Come into the presence of Christians too, where we can encourage one another and build one another up. You see, talking, talk about positioning again. We position ourselves to be built up or to fall apart by the choices we make about how we use our time. We position ourselves by those choices. Whether we make time for fellowship, worship, prayer, and teaching together, or for something else. You cannot be a solitary Christian. It's not biblical. God didn't make us that way. It's, it, 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 it's a deception. It's not God's plan. Now I know I'm putting before you a very different picture of Christian faith, of what it is to be a Christian believer, than what you will pick up on the religious TV channels. But I'm not apologizing for that because this is what I believe is gospel truth. What the scriptures teach. But after the warning comes encouragement and I need to get there otherwise I'll leave you here which is not a good place to leave you. After every time in Hebrews no matter how severe the warning there's immediately afterwards encouragement. That's why I can't preach it in too, in too small a chunk because I'll leave you hanging for a week or even two weeks. Because <gasps> Do you want to hear the encouragement? Yes. Oh, I hope you do. But remember the former days. He's speaking to these Hebrew Christians. They'd been through some stuff. When after being enlightened, you came to know the gospel, you endured a great conflict of sufferings, partly by being made a public spectacle through reproaches and tribulations, and partly by becoming sharers with those who were so treated. For you showed sympathy to the prisoners. You accepted joyfully the seizure of your property, knowing that you have for yourselves a better possession and a lasting one. These people had been, as Jesus predicted, they'd been dragged before councils and judges and synagogues. They'd been harshly treated. They'd perhaps been beaten. They'd then been excluded from synagogue and community life, which meant they would lose. some of them would have lost their livelihoods. It says here that some of them had had their possessions taken from them. They'd suffered and they'd shared in with the suffering of others. They'd cared for their fellow Christians in prison. They joyfully accepted people robbing them of their money, their goods, perhaps even their homes, their land. They joyfully accepted that for the name of Jesus. They'd endured and they'd overcome these things in the past. So what more was there to fear? If the Lord had kept them through those tribulations, wouldn't he strengthen Again, if a further, even greater trial were to come. This is what the Apostle is saying to them. Listen, my friends, you've been there before. You know the Lord was with you. You've got to be convinced in your hearts he's not going to forsake you in another day of trial. And you need to be telling one another that and encouraging one another that. It goes on. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance. That's the King James often says patience, but it means endurance, stickability. You keep on keeping on. So that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what was promised. For in a very little while he who is coming will come and will not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. And then the, the writer puts this. But... We are not. Even if there are those, we are not those. Do you get it? 
We are not of those who shrink back to destruction, but of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. You need to be able to say that confidently. By the grace of God, I am not one of those, but I'm one of these. Who will continue on in the grace of God, by his help, by his grace. I'm not quitting on this. Even if I'm challenged, severely challenged, in the confession of my faith, I, dear God in heaven, I do not want to deny my Lord Jesus. Settle it in your heart. Just when Paul's issued the greatest warnings, he adds a comment, he expects quite the opposite of his friends. He's expecting quite the opposite. He's already done that back in Hebrews 6. But, beloved, you know, we're convinced of better things concerning you. I know you're not going to go there. I know you're not going to do that. We're convinced of better things concerning you. Things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. Do not throw away your confidence. Those who endure and obey the Lord will inherit his promises in the long run. We are not of those who shrink back to destruction to sake the Lord and his people having loved this present world. We're not of those. But of those who have faith to the preserving of the soul. Repeat these things to yourself and to one another. Preach the gospel to yourself and to one another. Keep doing so. We've been working through this letter for some time. It was written to Christians from a Hebrew background who were entering into a severe trial of their faith. And I can't help but in looking into the next few years feel that there are not, I'm not predicting, you know, we're going to be put on trial for being Christians, but there are difficult times ahead in the world. What do we do? Put on, as someone said about our Prime Minister this week, she's put on a game face. I don't know what a game face looks like. Do you? I don't know what a fight face looks like. Do we just grin and bear it? No, we obey the Scriptures. We draw near to God to find grace and help in a time of need. We put on Christ Jesus. We pursue good conscience, living with an open heart and and a continually cleansed heart. And we put on confidence that it's not built upon self-reliance. It's not about what I know and who I am and all the rest of that junk. It's about trusting Jesus alone. My hope is built on nothing else but Jesus' blood and righteousness. We're all around my hope, my, my soul gives way. He then is all my strength and strength. I've probably misquoted it, but it's about him. It's not about me. He's the rock, not me. Draw near to God. Draw close to, to one another. Seek one another's encouragement and building up. There is a great purpose in our taking time to fellowship together because we endure in faith and hope together, confessing that Jesus is our hope to one another and then to the world. Before we break bread, I want to read this uh, scripture from Malachi 3 to you. It's not the tithing one. It's this one. I love, I've loved this verse for many, many years. Then those who feared the Lord spoke often to one another. And the Lord listened and heard them. So a book of remembrance was written before him for those who fear the Lord, who meditate on his name. Notice it's together. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts on the day that I make them my jewels. 
One of the choices we make in life is whether to live for the pleasure of God, to know what pleases him and to know in return the pleasure, the joy of God being poured in our hearts because we are well-pleasing to him. There's nothing like knowing that pleasure of God. Film the chariots of fire. There's an athlete there who's a Christian. He said, why why do you run so well? Because when I run well, I feel the pleasure of God. When you do well, you will know the pleasure of God. And God is pleased when we give time to build up and to encourage one another in our most holy faith. God is well pleased. To use an Eastern expression that turns up in the Bible. He's well pleased with that. Let's pray. We submit ourselves to your word, Lord Jesus. We thank you it's given to us to encourage us, to build us up, to give us inheritance. Because many and great and precious are your promises, but we will only inherit them through faith, through hope, through endurance, through obedience. And we want to be those who know the will of God, and do it, and know your pleasure, know your well done. Even now in this life, we have a sense of your well done, son, daughter. So we give ourselves to you again this morning. How shall we respond to this incredible gospel, this, this breaking of Christ's body and pouring out of Christ's blood for us, that we may be the, made the children of God? How shall we respond to this? Scripture says, by presenting our bodies as living sacrifices, holy, acceptable to him, which is our reasonable service. It's the only sensible thing we can do to give ourselves wholly to him in response. So let's do that right now, Lord, again. We submit ourselves to you. Here for you, Lord, we're here for you. In response to all you've done and are doing for us, we give ourselves to you. Now, Lord, in our breaking bread again today and receiving a cup of grape juice, we remember again that it is through your broken body, through your shed blood, that the old way has been put away. And that by one great final sacrifice for all God's people, for all their sin, for all all time, we have been made the children of God. We are loved by our Heavenly Father. We are welcome into His presence. We will stir ourselves to draw near. We remember, we give thanks. We remember too, Lord, that, that we don't have one loaf. We have individual bits of cracker. But we are together one loaf in the Lord. One body. We are members one of another. We have relationship. We have responsibility. We have the joy of receiving blessing and help one to another. Thus you have made it because it is your wisdom. It defeats the the wisdom, so-called wisdom of this world 
your church. It's a mystery. But we engage with it according to your word. We know we are blessed when we do what pleases you. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.